Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, make sure that we're ready to focus, concentrate, put aside all of those worries and fears and concerns about the instability of the cosmic system. Folks, it's been unstable all along. It's not going to get any more stable. Let's just relax, watch it, enjoy it. We know who's going to win. Okay? So we can just watch what the Lord's going to do, and and He's going to take care of us. So let's uh, bow our heads together, and after a few moments, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are our rock and our fortress. You are ever-present help in times of trouble. And we know that no matter what circumstances or situations we face in life, either individually, as a group, as a nation, as a body of Christ, we know that you are in control of history and that you have declared the end from the beginning. You're working out your plan. And so that no matter how uh, how uncertain, unstable, how uh, frightening things might appear on the scene, we can relax in divine viewpoint, trusting in you, trusting your word, knowing that uh, whatever happens, you are in control and you will be glorified in the outworking of your plan in history. Father, as we study tonight, continue our study in Revelation, we pray that we might be able to gain a greater appreciation for uh, how you are going to bring to a conclusion the uh, the trends in history and how you're going to bring into final judgment the uh, cosmic system, Satan, and uh, just all all those who are arrayed against you. And we pray that you'd help us to see these things in terms of how they strengthen our own confidence in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For those of you who have uh, been here on Tuesday night for a while and may not have gotten the announcement, I switched our normal Tuesday night King study with Sunday morning so that we're now studying Elijah on Sunday morning and we're in Revelation chapter 11 on Tuesday night now, continuing our study uh, of Revelation. So you might want to turn there, although we'll primarily focus on uh, Zechariah 3 and 4 tonight, but we'll be all over the Old Testament and New Testament as we uh, work our way through Revelation 11. One announcement that I want to uh, make you aware of so that you can put this on your prayer prayer list. I mentioned this to the men during the prayer meeting, and that is that uh, we can need to continue to pray for uh, Ukraine, pray for Jim Myers Ministries over there, continue to pray for those who are working over there and those who we know uh, who work with uh, Jim, the students, and others. I received an email from Eager uh, Smolyard on on. Uh, I think it was Sunday afternoon, and he stated that uh, things are going well with them. He needs a lot of prayer for Yulia and I think, uh, what's the little girl's name? Uh, Daniel's the boy, and I can't remember the little girl, but they're sick. And the whole family's been down with the flu the whole month of February. He said they couldn't even get out of the house. But he said they couldn't get their money out of the bank because the banks are insolvent and there's a in fact a couple of the articles I read today uh, the writers expressed uh, somewhat surprised that there wasn't any unrest, civil unrest in Ukraine due to uh, what's been going on there were lines outside the banks yesterday people trying to get their money out couldn't get their money out uh, I noticed a number of problems when I was there in January just went oh that's kind of odd normally you could go to an ATM machine there and get uh, one or two thousand Grieving out as options now, they wouldn't let you take out more than two or three. I talked to 
Mark Perkins, he said the, a lot of the little cash places that you have, the kiosk where you can exchange dollars for Grievna are closed. Uh, just hard to get money, hard to get cash there. And they're in a real economic uh, meltdown in, in Ukraine. And that has implications, not just personally for the people we know that are there, but also uh, internationally because of their position at, on the south uh, southwestern flank of Russia and the way Russia continues to, has all, historically depended on them as a buffer. I'm getting a lot of feedback. And Are you playing with the sound back there, Laura? I'm quiet? Okay. I've been accused of a lot of things. That wasn't one of them. Uh so anyway, we, we need to keep them in, in your prayers. Those kinds of things can have a tremendous uh, ripple effect. Okay, we've been studying in, in our study of Revelation chapter 3, the transition period that occurs uh, between Revelation 10 and Revelation 14. This takes us out of the chronological flow that has been going on in Revelation where we've looked at the Seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. That's the flow in the tribulation period, these three series of judgments. Seven seal judgments, the seventh seal opens its seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet blast reveals seven bowl judgments. So we are at the end of the sixth trumpet judgment, and there is this pause in the narrative as the writer shifts to explain what I believe are the trends in other areas of the tribulation. Primarily, all of these focus on what God is doing with Israel. Israel is the focal point in these uh, in these sections. Now, when we come to Revelation 11, 1 and 2, the focus is on measuring the temple. The uh, focus there is on measuring the inner sanctum, the temple, that is the inner sanctum precincts, the naos, the uh, uh, bronze altar, and the those who worship there. This has to do with God setting them apart in some sense. There's an authorization of that witness. I believe this is taking place in the first half of the tribulation because when we look at the second verse, the, the outer courts are given over to be trampled under by the Gentiles, and even though... 90% of the uh, commentators that you read on Revelation put that into the second half of the tribulation. The question that I have raised with several uh, scholars in this area has been met with a rather quietness, no answer, and that is, but the Antichrist enters into the uh, Holy of Holies in the abomination of desolation, and according to Daniel chapter 9, he stops the sacrifices. So there's a rebuilding of a tribulation temple. We studied that. There's a, a return to sacrifices, probably Levitical sacrifices, during the first half of the tribulation period, and then the Antichrist stops that. That shows that he is in the inner sanctum. That's the area that's measured in verse 1. He is controlling it and brings it under his dominion as he goes into his heightened powers in the second half of the tribulation period. So I take it that verse 2 is describing the first half of the tribulation and the scenario there, as is Revelation 11, uh, 3 and following. Now from verse 3 down through about verse 17, the focus is on these two witnesses that show up. Now, this is a tough chapter, and y'all have been uh, very patient with me as I have slugged my way through this. I felt like uh, studying this passage that I was walking through uh, six feet of wet cement wearing snowshoes and hip waders because it's, it's difficult. And a lot of commentaries and scholars skip over some difficult things in here. We used to always joke in seminary about the fact that, that don't always, don't go to commentaries to find solutions to the problems because, uh, writers of commentaries notoriously skip over these things. Well, um, there have been a lot of improvement in that area in the last, uh, last couple of decades. But I spent a lot of time over the last really six weeks on the phone with some of these scholars. I mean, some of these men are in their 70s and 80s and have specialized in revelation studies and eschatology for most of their careers. 
And one, one man said, you know, it's going to take me a month to get back to you on these questions because these are tough questions. You ask good questions. Well, I always had a professor in college who said it's not knowing the answers, it's knowing the questions. And it's not that I'm so brilliant. I'm not saying it for that purpose. I'm saying it to say this is this is tough. And and really a lot of these questions and a lot of these issues are sort of that subterranean um, structure on which your 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 conclusions and application are built. So if you don't get these things answered right, then it affects your interpretation of the passage, which in turn affects your ap- your application. And so many times you hit places like this in Scripture, although I don't recall ever hit one quite this difficult. And I think I finally worked my way through a morass of data and have some, some uh, conclusions. So these two witnesses are given authority, and one thing that struck me is this term, witnesses. They are typically referred to as two prophets that appear on the scene, for that is their function. But they are not called prophets here. They are called witnesses. And why is it that they are called witnesses? Because going back to the Mosaic Law and all the way through Scripture, that God is going to condemn people on the basis of the testimony of two witnesses. Not one witness, but two witnesses. And as I've taught for for years, the role of an Old Testament prophet wasn't to foretell the future. That's how most people think of a prophet. Oh, he tells what's going to happen in the future. That The future was only secondary to a prophet's ministry. That was only secondary. He had other purposes. His primary role is to challenge or condemn or indict the nation in light of their failure, the nation Israel, in light of their failure to obey the Mosaic law. So he's functioning sort of like a, like a defense attorney, and he is bringing charges against Israel for their failure to apply the Mosaic law. Everything that God does is based on, on a legal structure. Salvation is loaded with these legal terms, justification, forgiveness, uh, redemption, expiation. All these terms, uh, uh, imputation, all these terms are all loaded with courtroom terminology. It is the justice of God that has to be satisfied in salvation. That's satisfied by Christ's work on the cross. His work on the cross provides forgiveness in terms of that canceling of the debt we studied, uh, the canceling of the debt, expiation. He pays the price, pays the price in terms of the price that God's justice demands. God's justice is propitiated. All of these terms uh, are, uh, come out of legal context. We confess our sins. Confession is a legal term. So everything that God does is grounded in law. Now, why is that so important? Well, let me tie a lot of things together. There's a flag up here tonight. For those of you who weren't here Sunday morning, that flag was the first flag of the Republic of Texas. The Republic of Texas was established on March the 2nd, 1836, which was uh, celebrated yesterday. Actually, the vote occurred on March the 2nd, but it took uh, till March the 4th for everybody to, at the uh, convention to sign the Declaration of Independence for Texas so we can celebrate for 48 hours, March 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, uh, the independence of Texas. Now, the issue in the independence of Texas uh, relates to what I've just been talking about in terms of law. As a believer, as we go to the scripture, what we see is what God does in the way he deals with man from the very beginning of creation before there's ever any sin is he operates on the rule of law. He is the lawgiver. He establishes that, but he, he doesn't operate outside of law. He is setting, one of the, of the many things that are accomplished by that, he is setting an example in the fact that God rules in the affairs of men on the basis of his own law, which is revealed to man. And this is uh, given in these legal contracts, which we call Covenants and the first covenants, the creation covenant, second covenants, the revision of that in the Adamic covenant uh, after the fall in Genesis chapter three, and then the Noahic covenant after the after the flood. And we studied all those covenants, but God uh, works with man on the basis of these revealed standards, and within those revealed standards, He 
uh, reveals what the penalties, what the consequences are, and what the blessings will be for obedience, what the penalties will be for disobedience and the blessings for obedience. And he establishes that principle that we are to be ruled by law and not by people, not by men. This is often lost because uh, fallen man does not like to uh, operate on the basis of law. When men become, get too much power, it corrupts them. And because they are already corrupted internally by a sin nature. And so when this nation, the United States of America, was founded in 1776, one of the issues that, uh, that, uh, that characterized this nation was that they were a nation based on law. And a lot of people don't understand what that means anymore, that we are a nation based on law. That means that our ultimate allegiance is to the Constitution of the United States, not to the President, not to the Congress, not to uh, the judiciary, but to the Constitution. The Constitution is the ruling authority over man. This has its roots coming out of a long uh, evolutionary process within the uh, stream of, of British or uh, English law. And back in the 17th century, uh, there was a very famous uh, uh, work done by Samuel Rutherford called Lex Rex. The law is king. The king is not over the law, but the king is to uh, implement the law, and the king is to rule under the law. This is demonstrated all the way through the Old Testament. The prophet, as the representative of God, was the one who anointed the king. It was Samuel who anointed Saul. It was Samuel who anointed David. The king is under the authority of law. Law comes from God. God is a lawgiver, and even God submits himself or limits himself to these contractual obligations called law. Now, the folks that were coming into Texas, the mostly Anglo-Saxons that were coming into Texas, came out were, were for the most part, although there were a few exceptions, for the most part they came out of a stream of immigration that started about a 100 years earlier coming out of Ireland and Scotland, and they became known as, they were usually referred to as Scots-Irish Presbyterians. And so they brought with them a way of thinking that was shaped by their theology. They were not Scots, referred to as Scots-Irish farmers or Scots-Irish merchants, anything else, they refer to as Scots-Irish Presbyterians. And it, they brought with them this way of thinking about government that was shaped by the Calvinism of their Presbyterian theology. Uh, and they, they brought that with them. And they had a, an understanding that people were to be ruled by law and not by people or personalities or institutions, and that all people were therefore answerable to the law and to the Constitution. And the United States is founded on that principle so that we are answerable to a Constitution, a body of law, and that within that body of law, there is a framework for changing it correctly or legally, and it is not to be changed illegitimately by activist judges and activist courts or an activist Supreme Court because they can't get their way through the uh, votes of representatives. And see, because you've got a number of people who are extremely frustrated in this country because they can't get their way, they have sought to implement it through these uh, decisions of the judiciary rather than through the the constitutionally ordained uh, process. And you, you, you see the same thing happening right now uh, within the executive office. It happened, unfortunately, under Nixon back in the early 70s, and that is the illegitimate use of the executive branch to, to uh, force change on people that is outside of the parameters of law. So you always have problems with human beings who are fallen creatures who want to step outside of the framework of law in order to institute their own agenda. And that's what happened in Mexico in the 1830s. In the late 1820s, uh, Santa Ana became the elected um, ruler, president of Mexico, and he, one of the first things he did was he threw out the Constitution, Mexican Constitution of 1824. 
See, that exemplified the foundational uh, principle of man to do what he wants to do and to do away with law, to act in autonomy. And so what happens in Texas is you have a body of settlers, and it didn't just involve Anglo-Saxons. There were numerous other groups, including a number of uh, Mexicans and Mexican citizens who were here who had come up from Mexico who recognized the pure arbitrariness of Santa Ana's decision. And so you can't have a successful society. You can't have a stable society. You can't have a prosperous society unless it is under the authority of a, of a stable uh, authority, which must be the law. It can't be subject to the whims of different elections and, and different, different people. And so what made uh, Texas unique in the, their uh, revolution, their independence against Mexico, is the same thing that made the United States unique, and that was the overthrow of a tyrannical government that had refused to subordinate itself to the, to the law of the land. It was a rejection of the real authority, which was law. And when the government rejected the law, which was supposed to be its authority, then that put it in an illegitimate position. This is exactly uh, what had happened earlier with the king of England, putting himself in an illegitimate position which necessitated a, a rejection and a dissolution of that union. And so that is what gave birth to Texas. Now, we live some 180 or 75, something like that, years later. And the problem is that we have a couple of generations now who have grown up who have not been properly educated or trained in the public school system to understand what it means to live in a nation that is ruled by law. That means, and, and the idea of being ruled by the Constitution, and that we do everything according to constitutional law and constitutional precept, and even changing the Constitution according to the stipulations that are laid down uh, in that Constitution. And the, the threat always is that there are going to be political powers, political parties and groups that seek to subvert the Constitution and try to change things, and that's happening now, and so we need to pray that God would certainly uh, rescue us from the trends of tyrants. And I don't think that's restricted to any one political party because I see that a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle have lost sight of what it means to be constitutional. In fact, there's at least 10 states right now who have passed or in the process of passing uh, legislation uh, authorizing some sort of separation from the federal government because the federal government is violating both the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. We live in interesting times. But the principle, what we get from the Bible, is the rule of law. And that rule of law comes from God. So God is going to have these two witnesses, and these two witnesses are going to be there to bring about God's judgment and condemnation against the illegitimate rule and the illegitimate authority of the Antichrist, the first beast who was introduced in verse 7 of this chapter for, for the first time. So God is going to give uh, uh, delegate authority to these two witnesses. They serve a legal, judicial function in... Um, and this uh, in the tribulation period. That's important to, for understanding some of the uh, I, some of the illusions that are here going back to the Old Testament. And they will prophesy. That is their function. They will prophesy, which means they are going to uh, bring uh, announce judgment against the kingdom of the Antichrist for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. I've covered this in the past. The 1260 days, I think is a term, it's three and a half years. Uh, prof the prophetic year in the Bible is based on a 30-day month, 30 days and a month times a 12-month period. It's 360 days. 360 days times uh, three and a half years comes out to be 1,260 days. In verse 2, it's referred to as 42 months. The 42-month designation, I think, always refers to the bad guys. 
In chapter 13, it refers to the reign of the Antichrist as 42 months, the last half of the tribulation. It's not that uh, one number refers to the first half, one number refers to the second half. 1260 always refers to what the good guys are doing, uh, four, three and a half months, I mean 42 months, what the bad guys are doing. Now, they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, somehow, there we go. In verse 4, we have the introduction of these two witnesses. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So see, even that terminology, the Lord of the earth, emphasizes his authority to rule over the earth. This is judicial uh, language, judicial scenario. Now, to understand this, we have to go back to uh, the Old Testament because this imagery comes right out of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah chapter uh, 3 and chapter 4 specifically. Now, Zechariah is a very important book to understand because Zechariah is one of the, uh, probably the fourth most significant book in the Old Testament for understanding prophecy. Uh, Daniel, I think, is arguably the most significant, followed by uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah and then Zechariah. So, we're going to run into more and more things from Zechariah, so I chose this time to focus on some of the significant things there. And the issue in Zechariah is God remembers, and God remembers Israel. This is why we study prophecy. A lot of people wonder, why in the world we study prophecy? We're not even going to be in the tribulation. Let's worry about something more, more important. Well, we have to remember that prophecy in the Bible was never given to satisfy our curiosity about the future. That's not what it's about. It's not about trying to ascertain the signs of the times, how close are we, is the rapture around the corner, or any of these other uh, things that, that people want to worry about. If you read the Old Testament, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you read Daniel, what are the circumstances of these statements about the future? They are in the context of statements from God that he is going to bring judgment discipline on Israel. The economy is going to be wrecked. They are going to be militarily defeated. They are going to be under the thumb of foreign powers. They are going to go through years of instability, years of uncertainty, years where there's no prosperity whatsoever. But guess what? God is still true to his promise. God is faithful. There, will, there is a future for Israel, and God one day will give them all of the glorious things that he promised them, and they will be a prosperous nation. Ultimately, prophecy always relates to real hope, but that real hope isn't necessarily going to be next week, next month, or next year. Uh, it's not saying that just hold on to your investments, everything's going to be great in another five or six years. It may take centuries for God to work things out, so relax. God's in control no matter how out of control everything looks. So as long as we remember that that is why we study prophecy. Remember in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament canon was completed, between 28% and 33%, that's over a quarter, close to a third of the Old Testament was unfulfilled prophecy. And yet when Paul wrote Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, he told Timothy that he had uh, grown up and been trained by his mother and his grandmother who had taught him the scriptures. He had learned it from his mother's knee. That is, he was learning it before... Christ went to the cross. What's he learning? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. The all scripture there isn't talking about the New Testament, folks. The all scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 is talking about all those unfulfilled prophecies or includes all of those unfulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. To say that we don't need to study prophecy because, you know, that's going to happen in the future, we're not going to be there, shows a shallow, superficial view of the Bible. All Scripture, all of that unfulfilled Old Testament prophecy was important and just as important for uh, Timothy to know because it all feeds into our understanding of who God is and what he is doing uh, in history. So we go back to Zechariah 3, so turn with me there. And let's uh, just hit some of these high points. I focused the last time 
which was Sunday morning a week ago, on the first part of chapter 3. And the first part of chapter 3 is important because it introduces us to two of the key figures that dominated Israel's history historically in uh, the period after the return from Babylonian captivity. And that was not a great time. Uh, in Zechariah chapter 3, this is, this is roughly 20, uh, 520 B.C. They've been back in the land for 18 years, and after the first couple of years of enthusiasm, everybody comes back, they have the big cheerleading party and the big pep rally, we're going to rebuild the temple and everything's going to be great. And they become terribly discouraged by the people who have taken up residence in their land, their version of the uh, Palestinian Authority back in the ancient world, and their version of terrorist activities that were taking place and went on for another hundred years. Uh, Nehemiah describes all of the problems they had with the terrorists of that day trying to stop them from rebuilding the wall uh, around Jerusalem. And so the people were discouraged and they were down, they were defeated, and they had started to uh, rebuild the temple and they were just, just defeated and they quit. And yet they had, uh, they were, they had restored, uh, they had restored sacrifices. And, uh, under, under Zerubbabel, the governor, who was a Davidic descendant, and under Joshua. And so chapters three and chapter four really focus on these two key leaders and their role in bringing about a, a, uh, the cleansing of Israel uh, as they come back to the land. And their and the dedication of the of the new temple. And this is pictured. Uh, the first part of it is pictured in chapter three, and chapter three verses one through five, as we covered in the last lesson, is a depiction of the personal cleansing of Joshua the high priest. And it's also a picture of imputation of righteousness, as he is challenged. His his right to be the high priest is challenged by uh, Satan. And uh, verse 1, it is the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rebukes Satan and says in verse 3 that, verse 3 and 4, that Joshua is clothed with these new garments. That is a picture of his uh, legal cleansing before God. Now what happens in verses 6 through 10 is a picture of the future cleansing. We move from history to prophecy. The picture of the future cleansing that will come uh, to Israel when God finally delivers them. This is then focused, it's directing their attention away from the their current situation to a situation that is still in the future. So for them, it was at least 2,500 years away and, maybe, and it's probably uh, even more. So in verse 6, we read, and the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts. That's the temple area. And I will grant you free access among those who are standing there. And so this is the result of his being cleansed. He can now serve the Lord. Something that uh, I've been emphasizing in Hebrew study is that we have to properly approach the Lord in worship, and we are saved to serve him. And then in verse 8 we read, Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol, for behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. Now we're transitioning to the future. The term the branch, my servant the branch, is a messianic term. So now we're shifting gears to the future. He's telling Joshua, I will eventually bring in my servant, uh, the branch. And this is a, a term that is used in a number of passages uh, for, uh, for, the, for the Messiah. Uh, it indicates that he is a uh, descendant of David in passages such as Isaiah 11.1, 1, uh, Jeremiah 23.5, these are passages that relate to this same concept. And then in verse 9, he says, For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. And this is a term uh, that, again, is a term relating to the Messiah, the idea of a stone. Uh, he is the chief cornerstone. We read that in a number of passages as well. 
And the fact that he has seven eyes represents his omniscience, and therefore he will be worthy to reign. One of the trends that you see in the Old Testament is God's promise of this future perfect government. That future perfect government is not going to come in until the Messiah comes in. It's not going to come in through communism, socialism, capitalism even, because no human being can can do it. Everybody wants to try to bring in some utopic state, solve the ills of poverty, solve this problem, that problem, bring in universal health care. Somehow everything's going to be rosy, and it's not because we're all rotten sinners and we're living in a fallen world. And no government can solve these problems, and it's not the role of government to solve these problems. It's the role of people, individuals, to handle these situations on the basis of their own responsibility. That's, that's the first divine institution. The role of government is to restrain evil. It is not to solve all the problems in the earth. That was not the basis and reason for government on the basis of the uh, Noahic Covenant, which establishes human government. It is to protect the nation uh, from criminality within and from foreign enemies uh, on the outside. Uh, the, what God is showing down through history is that no government, whether it is a uh, loose government based upon uh, sort of a um, the, the people with no visible authority, such as uh, the period of the judges, and everybody just doing whatever they think is right, or whether it's a totalitarian or monarchy, no human government will solve the problems. It is only when there is the only government that can be perfect is a government led by someone who is perfect, and that is the greater son of David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can only rule perfectly when you have perfect, absolute knowledge of everything. You can only have absolute, perfect justice and perfect righteousness when you know all the facts. And you can't have a righteous government that has finite knowledge. And so that's the emphasis here. He has seven eyes. He is omniscient. And the second part of verse 9 states, uh, behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. Notice how we move from the cleansing of Joshua historically to the cleansing of the nation eschatologically. Now, this occurs when the Messiah, the son of David, the branch, is installed upon his throne. So this is the uh, future cleansing of the nation, and when they are redeemed as a nation in one day, and that is the day when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. So all of this relates to what God is doing uh, within the, the nation Israel. So what we see in chapter 3 is a focus on Joshua and Joshua's cleansing is used as a type of the nation's future cleansing under the Messiah. Then we come to chapter 4. Now in chapter 4, we're going to move from talking just about Joshua to talking about Zerubbabel. Verse 1, Now the angel who talked with me came back, wakened me as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. So this is his next vision. And he says, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking. There's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. So you've got this imagery here of this seven-bold menorah. And out of this, uh, and this menorah is being fed by these seven pipes. And the seven pipes are coming out of these two olive trees. So you can see that in the picture. We have these two olive trees on each side. And the vision that Zechariah saw was that out of those comes uh, the oil that feeds the, uh, the lampstand. Now, a lampstand in Scripture is a picture of the illumination of truth. Oil is the, related to the Holy Spirit and to the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And that's demonstrated in a number of different passages and this is one of those passages. Verse 4, uh, Zechariah it wants some interpretation. See, God doesn't leave you to just kind of guess as to what these things mean. He's going to, uh, the angel is going to interpret it for him. 
And uh, so Zechariah asked, what, what does this mean? And verse 5, we read, Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Don't you know what these are? And he says, No, my Lord. And verse 6, he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. See, that's where he identifies that that's what this oil is that is coming out from the lampstands, the Spirit of God and the Word of God as a basis for our power, and that's the power we have in the Christian life that is the basis for power, and God is going to, is setting this in the context of the future. This isn't talking about what was fulfilled historically in Zechariah's time. Now, Zerubbabel and Joshua, as the two key leaders in Israel, are a type of this. The ultimate fulfillment is in the millennial kingdom, and what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Anybody remember, what's what's he going to inaugurate? The new covenant. And what does the new covenant involve? He is going to put my spirit in your heart. Nobody's going to need to teach their neighbor again. See, there is going to be this radical shift in that millennial dispensation that is predicated on the power of God the Holy Spirit. And so the endowment of the Holy Spirit, that temporary empowerment of the Holy Spirit for the prophets and some of the leaders of Israel in the Old Testament is merely a foretaste of the future millennium. What's happening with believers in the church age today and our relationship to the Holy Spirit in terms of the indwelling and the filling of God the Holy Spirit is also merely a foretaste or foreshadowing of that role of the Holy Spirit when you get into the millennial kingdom. Because when that unique ministry of the Holy Spirit in the new, the new covenant ministry occurs, it is going to provide uh, a, a, a transformation and a knowledge such that, as Jeremiah says, that one man's not going to need to teach the another. You know, I'm going to be out of a job. Everybody will know inherently and intuitively, every regenerate person through the Holy Spirit will know uh, the Word of God and understand the revelation of God. And so that's what this is describing, is this future empowerment by the Holy Spirit as indicated by the oil. So, question. Anything in here related to the sacrifices? No. The reason I bring that up is because there, it, one of the views out there is that what's significant about, and this is one of those things you take hours to track down, is the, the, the claim that the ministry of, uh, of, of uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel was to reinstitute the sacrifices after the nation returned from Israel. But that's only mentioned in Ezra chapter 3. That occurred in 536 B.C. when Zerubbabel, uh, and Joshua brought the first group back from Babylon. It was about 50,000. And uh, Ezra chapter 3 describes the Feast of the Tabernacles, which occurs in the fall of the year, and when they rebuilt and inaugurated and cleansed the bronze altar and reinstated sacrifices. But that's not what's in Zechariah. Zechariah doesn't even touch on that. Now you say, okay, you've lost me. Why are we talking about this? Because in Revelation chapter uh, 11, verse 4, there's this connection identifying these two witnesses as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So to understand the role and ministry of those two men, these two witnesses that are going to appear at the, uh, in, in the future, in the tribulation period, the writer of, of Revelation identifies and compares their ministry with these two witnesses in Zechariah 3. But they're not, nothing in Zechariah 3 says anything about sacrifices. What does it talk about? It talks about the Holy Spirit. It talks about that which energizes their ministry, and it is the Spirit of God. Now, that brings up the question that's at the top of the slide, and that is, who are these two witnesses? Who are the two witnesses? And there are a couple of different suggestions that have been made over the years in terms of identifying who these two witnesses are. And usually it focuses on Elijah and Moses. These are the first, this is the most um, common uh, reference is it's 
Elijah and Moses because of their ministry to Israel. And what I want you to do here, I'll put several slides up on the board so you don't need to turn back and forth to a lot of passages in Scripture, but it's, it's really important to connect some of these passages to, to other Scripture. What happens in verse 6 is that there is a description of their ministry. They have the um, power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Now, who did that? Elijah. We've been studying that on Tuesday nights up to now in 1 Kings. So that is like what Elijah did. Second part of verse 6 says, And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When did that happen? That happened at the Exodus. That was Moses. So what they do is similar to what Elijah did and what Moses did. Their ministry is clearly related to this temple, and it's related to Jerusalem back in verse uh, to the holy city, and then uh, later on we'll see that uh, it's involved um, with uh, the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, in verse eight, where also our Lord was crucified. That was in um, that was in Jerusalem. So their ministry functions out of Jerusalem. So obviously they're Jewish. They relate to Jerusalem. Their role is as prophets. Uh, it's got to be Moses and Elijah. Now, there's another candidate for this role, and that is Enoch. The reason Enoch is mentioned, Enoch was one of the antediluvian uh, believers in the line of Seth, and he actually, uh, actually his son was Methuselah, who was the oldest man in the Old Testament. I believe he lived to be 969 years old. But Methuselah, even though he was the oldest man in the Bible, he died before his father did, because Enoch never died. The Bible says that he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He had such a close relationship with God, he never went through physical death, at least that which was observed. Now, I believe he did have to go through a transformation because he's going to go from planet Earth to where? Where did he go? He went to Hades. He went to Abraham's bosom because until the Lord rose from the dead as the first fruits of resurrection... Nobody received a glorified, resurrected body. So everybody in the Old Testament who dies went to uh, Abraham's bosom, and they had a temporary uh, body of some sort, and that's indicated by the story about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke, where they go, Lazarus died, the beggar dies, goes to Abraham's bosom, the rich man died and went to torments, and he calls out to Father Abraham, please uh, touch your finger in the water and put it on my tongue because I'm in so much pain. All of these terms indicate some sort of physical property there, so there's some sort of interim interim body uh, that these Old Testament saints had, but it's not a glorified, resurrected body, yet they don't get that because Jesus, until Jesus Christ rose from the dead as the, as the, uh, as the first fruits. I don't think it's going to be Enoch, because Enoch wasn't Jewish. This is clearly a Jewish ministry. I do think that there can, there, an argument is presented that holds water for, for Elijah and for uh, Moses, but even that has problems. Now, this is based on a number of passages that we run into in the Old Testament. The very last chapter of the Old Testament makes a, an extremely uh, significant prophecy uh, related to uh, related to Elijah. Related to Elijah. Let me skip ahead here. Malachi four five says, "Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord." Now that term, great and terrible day of the Lord, is a term we have not done a detailed analysis of yet. It is. Uh, roughly at, at the broadest level, the term day of the Lord is a term that describes a judgment of God upon man. It is used a couple of times to refer to historic judgments uh, that came upon Israel, and it is used 
mostly to refer to events in the tribulation period. Sometimes it's a broader reference. Sometimes, usually when it's referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord, it, it, it may be simply the final, uh, the final part of the battle, the campaign of Armageddon, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be an allusion to the, uh, the bold judgment period itself, which would be the second half of the tribulation, but it is clearly in that latter part of the uh, seven years of the tribulation period. So Elijah the prophet is going to be sent before that time, before the second half of the tribulation, before at least the second half of the second half of the tribulation. And what is he going to do? He is going to restore, that's the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn. Sometimes it's translated repent. Uh, it simply means to turn or change your mind, change direction. And this is the term that you have again and again and again and again and again all the way through uh, the Mosaic Law that when people have rejected God or they've gotten into idolatry that the nation will need to turn to God. Again and again, this is the word that is used. And so to understand Malachi 4, 5, you have to understand the challenge of the whole Mosaic Law that God is calling upon the nation to turn to him. And so it is going to be the function of Elijah to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite their land with a curse. It seems to me that there's going to be something of a smiting of the land during the last half of the tribulation period. Also, the terminology, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers is terminology that reflects the the unique aspects of the regeneration associated with the new covenant, that God is going to put a clean heart in them. Now, Elijah doesn't do that. Let me suggest that. Elijah does not do that. The Messiah does that when he inaugurates the new covenant at the second coming. Well, wait a minute. This says that it's Elijah who does it. Well, I think that there, there's an element of grammar related to, to various verbs, not just individual verbs, but related to verbs, various tenses, that you have a, a con, like you're familiar with a present tense that's a continuous present. You're also familiar with a present tense that's a future present. Even though it's stated in the pre present tense, it's referring to an event in the future because it is so certain in its occurrence that it is referred to in the present tense. There is also a way of using a present tense, a future tense, an aorist tense called an inceptive uh, aorist or future. Actually, there in no grammar is there an inceptive future, but I don't know why not. Inceptive is simply a fancy grammatical term for beginning. And an inceptive tense is translated, he began to do something. He will begin to do something. And I think that's what how this should be translated, is that Elijah doesn't fully restore this, but it is the ministry of these witnesses to begin that restoration process that, be, that culminates in the national turning of Israel to, to their Messiah, which occurs at the end of the tribulation period. Now, there will be hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Jews that become saved during the tribulation period. But the nation as a corporate whole doesn't make that final turning to God until the end of the tribulation period. And Elijah is going to show up on the scene and he is going to be instrumental in this, and he shows up before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So he's going to show up before the Messiah uh, literally returns to the earth. But how are we to understand this Elijah? Is this literal Elijah? Is Elijah going to be brought back to life and given a physical mortal body again, one that can be killed? Because that's what's going to happen is the Antichrist, the beast out of the abyss, is going to kill him. And the other witness, is this going to be a physical bodily resurrection or resuscitation of Elijah? Or is this going to be someone who is just so similar to Elijah in his makeup that, uh, that he carries out the same uh, function as Elijah? And this is 
a, a, one of the great conundrums we have to try to figure out in Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, God is going to, uh, God announces to Zechariah, a priest who is serving in the temple, that he is, his wife who has been barren to that point, his wife's name's Elizabeth, that she is going to become pregnant and have a child. This is great news for Elijah, I mean for Zechariah, because they've been trying, but there's something unique about this son that they're going to have. And Gabriel announces this to Zechariah. In verse 16 of Luke 1, he says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Notice that turn terminology. Right out of Malachi. But it's not just out of Malachi 4. He's going to make a statement that's also out of Malachi chapter 3. He says, It is he, that is, it's your son, who will go as a forerunner. Actually, the word forerunner is not in the, uh, the text. It's not in the Greek of, of uh, Luke chapter 1. And so just skip it. He will go before him. Now you have the word pros erkomai there. Pros indicates that going before and then it's uh, emphasized again by the addition of another preposition. So it it's reinforces the fact that this he is going before. That's why Translators will insert the term forerunner because it's uh, the unusual emphasis of the of the uh, verbiage in in the Greek. He will go as a forerunner before him. How? In the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, in the Greek, you have the preposition in, which often indicates instrumentality, and I think it does here. You have in plus the dative of pneuma, meaning spirit. And then uh, uh, dunamis for power. But there's no repetition of the article with power. So that ind- that's a, uh, a grammatical construction that's referred to as a hendiadis. That's when you have a, a preposition or an article and two nouns that, that are linked together by a conjunction. And the two nouns are closely related. It's not a granville Sharp rule, but they should be under- understood as where one is a noun and one functions as a as an adjective. So he is saying basically he will go forth in the spiritual power of Elijah. That's how you translate translate a, a, a hendiadis. And then what does he say? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. So that's his mission. His mission isn't to oppose the Antichrist. His mission is to bring about national regeneration in Israel. And it is a quote from our passage there in Malachi uh, chapter chapter 4, that he is going to, 4 verse 6, the last verse of the Old Testament, he will turn uh, the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Then he says, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to what? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, if you're in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is a key Old Testament passage that is quoted in various places in the New Testament, Matthew 11.10 and Mark 1, 2, and 3, and Luke 1.76, describing the role and the mission of John the Baptist. And Malachi 3.1 states, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? That second coming terminology except for the first part. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That messenger that prepares the way of the Lord is Elijah. John the Baptist is said to be going forth in the spiritual power of Elijah by Gabriel. This is an opinion. So if he's Elijah, is he, he's not the literal physical Elijah. He simply appears to be. He simply ministers in the, in the same way that Elijah did. Matthew 11, 11 Jesus is talking about this. 
and in verse um, 14, middle verse up there on the screen, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Wait a minute. I thought he was John the Baptist. John chapter 1, preview of next week. John chapter 1, the Pharisees came up to John in the wilderness and said, Are you Elijah? And he said, No, I'm not Elijah. Confused? Good. You'll be here next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God of history. You are the God who controls all things. And that as we study these things, it gives us confidence to face the uncertainty of our day as we realize that even our nation is going through a collapse as a result of divine discipline because of the corruption in the hearts of men, because of corruption in leadership, in business, corruption in government. And we have no idea where this will lead or how bad things might get. But when we put our eyes on the details of life, it is easy for us to become discouraged and to become uh, depressed. But we ought not because you are in control and we should never be upset because the world acts like the world. Instead, we should rejoice because we see that the world is exactly as you have described it. And the only hope is not in government. The only hope is not in political parties. The only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and your plan. And this drives us more and more to a study of your word that we might be strengthened and empowered by your word and your spirit. And we pray that we may not lose sight of this. In Jesus' name, amen.